welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. And uh, let's start with the uh, serenity prayer. After a moment of silence for those suffering inside and outside of the rooms. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I will not mine be done. Amen. Welcome to this meeting of Sexholics Anonymous. This is a closed meeting. Only conference attendees registered as Sexholics may attend this meeting. This is a topic meeting. I will introduce the topic, and there will be some will be time allotted for sharing on the topic. Essays Anonymous program. Many of us carry cell phones or mobile computers capable of audio and visual recording. To maximize our commitment to anonymity, we cannot allow the use of these devices for recording of anything inside this conference. Uh, and they are. This meeting is recorded, so if you want to uh, get the recording, you can afterwards. I will share for five minutes. My co-host will share, and then we'll open up to the floor. You know, the subject of this meeting is uh, is uh, isolation versus connection. And I think we started out with a solution because the very last sentence of that. Do you have that reading again? Read it very loudly, please. The last just sentence or two. Dominic, sexaholic. We were learning how to give. Is that early enough for you? We don't. We're at the end. Okay. We were finding what none of the substitutes had ever supplied. We were making the real connection. We were home. Yeah, we were making a real connection. We were home. The solution to this program is to get out of isolation. It's interesting that, you know, part of my story is, I mean, I'm also an AA, and I did a lot of drinking, a lot of sexual acting out. And in the sense, there's two ways of isolating. How can you isolate? Well, the way I didn't isolate is I looked very public. I looked like I was out participating in life and being a part of. And and then there's some guys that I sponsored truly isolated in their addiction. Part of my addiction was out amongst. And the isolation occurred in, in my head. It occurred sitting at home. My wife would often say, but you were home last night. I talked to you. You know, that old expression, the body's there, the lights were on, the dog's barking, the, but there's nobody there. And I could go to meetings, and often where I found isolated in meetings, I would sit at meetings early in sobriety and feel so lonely I could hardly stand it, early part of meetings. Everybody else seemed to be part of and and had friends and grip and grin and having a good time. Uh, my addiction took me all around the world. It took me, I was molested, incested as a boy, and uh, then got into prostitution, then got into pornography, eventually sex with men. I mean, it was just crazy crap. And then untold hours of, of pornography and porno shops. And the isolation came particularly at the end of my addiction after coming out of a porno shop and doing some of the things I did in there, just feeling terribly shamed, guilty, disgusted, dirty, isolated. Uh, I came to this program in 2000. And 
my current sobriety date is January of 2010. And so I played with this program. I played with the edges. I tried to control it. Uh, and in fact, I'm 33 years sober in AA and I used my sponsor. I never lied to him. I said one more time I was in a porno shop. One more time I did this and we'd write out the steps and we'd work on it. And then one day he didn't, I figured out, I said, you know what? I'm treating this as a character defect. It's not. It's an addiction. Just like alcohol was, but, and I was treating it as addiction. We just get this addict, this defect under control. A whole different than defect and addiction. And what I discovered when I finally got honest with myself that sexaholism, sexaholism was my drug of no choice. Alcohol was my drug of choice. I hid behind alcohol for a long time. If I hadn't been drinking, I wouldn't have done what I did. <laughs> You'd think I'd figured out sooner, but ten years after I quit drinking, I finally said, you're still sexually acting out. Oh, but that's not a problem because I'm talking to my sponsor and we're working the steps on it. We're going through the program. And one of these days, this defect will be taken care of. And then when I came into SA, uh, at some level, I was treating this as an addiction. And, uh, I mean, as a, as a uh, defect. And I'd work on it and work on it and work on it. And there's a couple of things I want to read that, that, uh, in the big book, and when we share, eventually we're going to all have to come up front here and sit here because this meeting is being recorded. Uh, more about alcoholism. The persist, uh, the idea that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my lusting was the great obsession of every abnormal luster. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursued it into the gates of insanity or death. I had to learn that I had to fully concede to my innermost self that I was a sexaholic. This is the first step of recovery. When you go through the book, it starts on step three is where the italics start with the steps, and thereafter you find that. But one and two are not italicized. And people say, well, I'm powerless. And I use, I'm powerless. I'm, I'm mad. I know that. Well, that's a very intellectual statement. I'm looking at the, I'm powerless and unmanageable. Yeah, that's me. But I hadn't gone inside, and it said... Once more, I had to, I have to learn that I have to fully concede to my innermost self, my heart, my soul, my very being, that I'm a sexaholic. This is the first step of recovery. Otherwise, my sponsor explained, you're just going through the motions. If you don't believe that, you're just going through the, you're taking the steps in compliance, and then you're saying they don't work. I've done all the steps and they don't work. I did the steps three times in that first six years. Well, it must be something wrong. Well, I hadn't fully conceded because I didn't want to be a sexaholic. My mother and father were alcoholics and sexaholics, the molest, the incest, and and I vowed I would never do any of that stuff, and I'm not going to be like them. And finally I had to decide, although I didn't do the things that my mother and father did, I never physically molested or incested my daughter, but I emotionally incested her to the point I used to fly airplanes from the military. She was praying that the plane I was flying would crash. That's how badly I'd hurt her emotionally and spiritually. And when I made this concession and finally realized in my heart of heart, in my soul of souls, and I am truly honest when I say today, I am grateful to be a sexaholic. People say, well, I'm grateful to be in recovery. Uh, okay. Well, why aren't you grateful to be a sexaholic? Well, because I don't want to be one. Well, you are one. But I'm grateful for recovery. Why? Well, because I found a new life and happiness and God will, is there any other disease going to get you here? I volunteer to, uh, to Mercy Hospital in San Diego every week and I can walk into a unit 
They're dying of cancer. They're dying of this. And say, I got a 12 step program from cancer. All you got to do is take the 12 steps, find a power grade in yourself. And they jump out of bed and say, Oh my God, lead me to it. Ask a sexaholic to join us. And you go, what? You got to be crazy. That's the last thing I want to be is a sexaholic. They'd trade us in a heartbeat for the, rather than needles and chemotherapy and all that stuff, trade us in a heartbeat. And I'm grateful because no other disease brings me to a God. No other disease brings me to the fellowship. No other disease brings me to not isolation, but to this, com- this connection that we feel in the program. And we get to see people that I've known for years now. And there's a connection. I see people walking across the lobby and go, damn. Doug, how are you doing? And I didn't have that, you know, when I was out there drinking and lust. I played the game. I know I learned long before I got sober, fake it till you make it. I knew how to play the game out there when I'm drinking and pretending like I'm having fun and partying, but I wasn't. And the it, proved literature, we can root approved literature, any Alcoholics Anonymous approved literature. Has anybody ever heard of Member's Eye View? It's probably one of the oldest pamphlets that San Diego's gotten or I mean that AA has, been around about 55 years. Every person that I sponsor AA gets it. A guy named Alan McGinnis uh, in, in uh, 2000, or I'm sorry, 19, 1880, 1985, was given a lecture at UCLA to counselors, and he had quite a bit of recovery at that time. And so he did this talk, and somebody recorded the talk and sent it to GSO in New York and said, wow, we can kind of, Put this anonymous format. It is the pamphlet, as far as I'm concerned, that explains everything about what, why, where, and how the program works. Works just, and you read it for essay, it's the same way. But in here, he talks about a statement that he makes. He says, I am personally convinced that the basic search of every human being from the cradle to the grave is to find at least one other human being before whom he can stand completely naked, stripped of all pretense or defense, and trust that person not hurt him, because that other person has stripped himself naked too. This lifelong search can begin to end with the first essay encounter. And for me, I know that's true, to find that one person that I could stand before emotionally, spiritually naked and just tell you everything about me. And I knew that growing up. I knew that in that house that there was nobody that I could trust. And it wasn't until I got here that I could find that. And then at the end, he talks about, uh, there must come a day, it seems to me, when every sexaholic, in or out of essay, finally sits down in the presence of his enemies. When he does, he will be amazed to discover that he's attending a meeting of one, himself. The day the sexaholic in essay realizes that his enemy is within, that the tigers are largely creatures of his own design and lurk in his own unconsciousness, that is the day when for him essay becomes what I believe his founders meant it to be, a flight into reality. And I never knew reality. I lived in an imaginary world of everything I think, imaginary re- at work, imaginary if I had a different wife and she'd do certain things, if people would respect me this way and do that, I'd be okay. And today I'm absolutely okay. It's taken me a long time in 12-step programs to come to the point where I can truly say I am a loving child of a loving God, wonderfully made, just as I am. And I have to accept every defect about me. I can't say I love my left hand and hate my right hand. I said, well, I don't like the way I do. I am who I am. I asked my wife, and I'll end up with this. 
we had a step study, and I went home and asked my wife. I said, you know what? The question came up, and I said, do you think I'm personality? Am I the same personality that same guy you married some 48 years ago, 49 years ago? She says, yeah. And she says, by the look on your face, you're taking that the wrong way. He said, your personality is what it is. But I see you working very hard on changing your behaviors. I can't change my personality. But I have to accept everything about me, the control issues, the whole nine yards that goes along with it. I just don't have to act out. I can verse, I can, instead of reacting, I can act. I can change those behaviors. And that's what I work on today, not repeating those personality behaviors. But every once in a while, I'll do something that I can't believe I just did. I haven't done that in months or years. Or just said that. Well, that's who I am. I just got caught unawares, and there it was. Cropped up one more time. But to find, as he talks about, that one other person, to sit down in the presence of him and know that the enemy is not you, not them, not it, not my wife. I'm my worst enemy. always have been. And I can't sign up for that, so I have to blame you. And then I can point fingers at you. And the only safe way to point, by the way, is this way, right? Because if you point this way, there's three fingers coming back. So if you're pointing this way, there's no blaming. You just point this way, you're okay. And by the way, if you're reporting facts, it's not inventory taken, right? So, I mean, I played all the games, and one day I found the enemy, and the enemy was within, and the enemy's with me. And so this thing about joining, being a part of, and I love coming to the conferences and the conventions to get outside of the local area just to see that, God, there's still people around the state and around the country staying sober. At least that's what they say. i got to believe it. So I'm going to pass it over, and then if you want to share, come up, sit here, and we'll give you the microphone, and uh, we'll go from there. Tom Sexaholic. Thanks, Steve, for sharing. Uh, my sobriety date is uh, March 17th, 1996. And um, I have a sponsor, same as Gary. And uh, interesting topic, because I was a guy that lived in my head a lot. And that's real isolation. You know, I could be in a room with people, and I'd be running my head about me, my favorite topic. I remember one time, you know, sitting with a girlfriend I was dating and she said, where are you? You know, I probably was all glazed over, you know, and running my head about something and, uh, or whatever, lusting, probably a high possibility. And, uh, you know, I too, uh, entered 12 step programs through Alcoholics Anonymous and I would talk to my AA sponsor and usually he would just say, well, don't do that. Well, if I could just not do that, I would tell him the things I was doing, but you know, I couldn't just did some things did change after I got, uh, sober from booze. Cause I used to could probably blame a lot of my acting out on, I was drunk kind of thing, you know, but well, some interesting stuff started after I got sober. So I no longer could blame alcohol for it. So what's the problem here, you know? And it took me quite a few years. I think maybe, uh, I had about 15, maybe 15 and a half years uh, in AA before I showed up here. I had taken a look at it once before, and uh, uh, I was uh, doing um, kind of like we, we'd call it a general confession type thing in, in the Catholic Church with a priest. And uh, he didn't say to me, you're a, you're a sex addict, dude. He said, uh, I got a little book, this little book here you might want to take a look at, and I won't mention it because it's not essay approved, but it was in involved with sexual addiction. And so I was just thumbing through it, you know, and I realized, wow, I got a problem. 
I got some legal issues that I didn't even realize that what I was doing had legal issues. And, uh, you know, the, the degree of addiction and stuff. And, uh, that still didn't get me to stop. It took me a few years and, you know, and, uh, but you know, it did get to me. Like I'm trying to lead a spiritual life and the stuff I was doing sexually, you know, it doesn't go hand in hand. How, how can I improve my spiritual condition in AA and doing the stuff I was doing? And, uh, a few things got my attention. And, uh, I remember one of them in particular, I was at a jacuzzi, uh, uh, like an exhibitionism in a, apartment building I lived in and there were people that could have looked out their windows and seen what I was doing and another time there was somebody in the in the jacuzzi at the same time and like that was kind of really disgusting me but you know I was an addict so I had to do what I had to do and of course I was heavily isolating when I was looking at pornography and masturbating you know I wasn't even involved with another person with that I closed the drapes and you know that was uh what I was up to and uh so it was interesting to come here and really let somebody know my whole gig. You know, the big book talks about that. You have to be totally honest with another person in your life. <clears throat> and that is such a freedom. Oh, my gosh. You know, that I was able to do that. And I remember doing my uh, probably, like I guess, my sexologue in my first step. I don't remember which it was with Gary up at the Big Bear Retreat out in the woods there. And uh couldn't find a spiritual spot, I suppose, to be doing something like that. But, I mean, it was pretty good with my AA sponsor. I told him quite a bit of stuff. Uh, and even that, there was some freedom there, uh, letting him know that. But he didn't have any solution, you know. Uh, he tried to help, but he didn't know what to do with me, <laughs> I'm sure. But um, so when I got to S.A., uh, I remember showing up at my information meeting in West LA and I don't think I'd ever really talked to somebody about the extent of the stuff I was doing. And, uh, you know, they didn't throw me out, you know, and, and I'm a weirdo and a pervert. And my sponsor said to me once that I preyed on people and uh, I had honest sponsors. My A sponsor told me is one of the mis- that I was one of the most dishonest guys he ever crossed paths with. And, uh, they were honest with me. I, I didn't always like what they were telling me, but, uh, you know, they were right. And, uh, I used to hear that term too. I'm a grateful alcoholic or sexaholic and like it turned my stomach when I was new, you know, but today I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I'm a grateful sexaholic. I would not have the life I have today if I wasn't those two things. And I'd come here and work the steps and I got a life beyond my wildest dreams. And, uh, now, who knew? <laughs> you know, I didn't want to stop for a lot of years. That was part of the problem. But the, the thought of controlling, you know, that was, that was a joke. Uh, I remember I'd take all my magazines, you know, and I'd put them in a suitcase and, uh, or throw them out. And then I figured, why do that? You know, you're going to go buy them again anyway, you know. And I got sober before I got a computer. Thank you, God, for that one. Because uh, w- once I bought a VCR, I knew what was going to happen. Then I got really hooked on videos. And, uh, so I, I, cause all I hear about nowadays with all the newer people coming in is the computer and the iPhone and all that stuff, you know, phew, I am blessed that I haven't yet had to play on those machines. And, uh, I know I could, I'm just as culpable as anybody else. If I start looking at that stuff again, you know, and, um, uh, anyway, so really hitting the topic 
the connection that you get with other people in 12-step programs. You know, the guys, you know, that I've sponsored and, you know, it's, it's, you just don't get that sitting on a bar stool or in a porno shop. You know, the closeness you have when somebody shares their life with you. You know, so if you haven't sponsored anybody, that's probably as important to me as my having that connection with my sponsor and, uh, being able to sit there and maybe tell them a few of the things I've done and, you know, not to be judgmental no matter what it is because nobody was judgmental to me. And, uh, so anyway, welcome everybody to the conference and I, I hope you have a great time and do whatever you need to do here and God bless. Okay, now we're going to open the floor for sharing with a size group, three to five minutes. And please come up here and share and uh, try to share as close as you can on the topic. We'd greatly appreciate that. Hi, I'm John, and I'm a sexaholic. Hi, John. Yeah, great topic. Um, You know, when I'm in isolation and when when I'm not connecting – my disease has me right where it wants me to be. Uh, my disease doesn't want me to even be connecting. It doesn't want me to be, it wants me to isolate. And that way I get to live inside my own head and create the craziness that goes on with my addiction. Um, you know, me, for me, for a long time, it was about, isolation was about not being able to connect with people because I had something to hide. I can remember in my marriage that when things confronted me, of course I had this big issue going on with addiction and no one knew about it, um, that I would isolate. I'd isolate from, uh, from the people that were closest to me. And why? Because I sure as heck wouldn't want that to affect my ego and my pride about who I really am and that, you know, that what what you see on the outside isn't anything like what's going on on the inside. So that would drive me to isolate. And at the same time I would isolate, I would want to turn it around and blame other people just so they couldn't see who I really was. And I can remember constantly doing that to my my. My family, my kids, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's all about ego and pride. And you know what? And I would just isolate from them until they came around and said, you know what? We're wrong. I mean, that's how bad that is. Connection. Why would I want to be with, connect with people when I got this disease going on? And I'm not willing to share it with anyone because, heck, you know, everything's about validating me. Everything's about how I look to other people. So why would I want to connect with people? If anything, I sure as heck would. You know, I was afraid to show people who I who I really was because then again, it would mess with my ego and my pride and everything else. So I was I was caught. I mean, I was stuck. Stuck. I didn't. I'd want to isolate. I didn't want to connect. You know, I'd pick and choose. If I had a good moment, maybe I'd connect with you. Of course, you know, if you, if I didn't like what you said, then I wouldn't want to connect with you. It's another one of my character defects. So you know what? I did that for a lot of years in my life. I mean, virtually 60 years in my life, that's the way I led my life. And I hid it from everybody. You know, I've gotten to see by working the program 
that a lot of my character defects that I had, people were going, okay, this guy might seem like he's all right, but he's sure got a lot of strange stuff that he's, that's, you know, that he's, disp- that he's displaying. And you know what? I never, I never, uh, shared my disease with anyone until I was 60 years old. And I finally told my therapist, this was after going to therapy. This was after my wife, um, said she had enough. Um, she had no idea that I was, that I was doing the things I was doing. And I went to therapy and I lied to the therapist and said, yeah, you know what is childhood stuff that's going on here? But the thing is, is that that was the first opportunity that I, I was able to get outside of my own head, let go of that ego and that pride and share with someone that there was, a, there's a real problem and I'm the problem. And I can remember that day doing that. And it was my first opportunity to connect outside myself. You imagine 60 years living with this disease with that in your own head. That was, that was probably one of the first steps in recovery for me was to be able to connect with another human being and be honest, make a connection. And for, so for me, all along the way in this program, when I got in here, um, this program taught me how to connect, how to be honest, how to, uh, um, you know, all the things that we do in the program, the way we connect, we, we do renewals. You know, we get outside of our own head. We share, you know, what people can tell us that, hey, you want, you know what, you're a little crazy today. And what a blessing that is. And that isolation is, gosh, how can you isolate around here? Oh my gosh, with all the stories going on and, you know, and the honesty. And it's, it's, it's an amazing thing in recovery and, Without coming here to these rooms, there's no way that I could have ever done that myself because I proved that by living a completely opposite life for 60 years. So grateful to be here and grateful to uh, have those in my life today. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks. Thanks, John. And if you're not familiar with the white book, it says I can call on people, so I'd rather not do that. we got 25 minutes to tape here. Doug, <laughs> would you like to share? <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Doug, and I am a sexaholic. I'm still a sexaholic. It didn't go away overnight when I was sleeping, I guess. Um, isolation has come naturally to me. I grew up on a ranch out in the middle of nowhere, and there was me and my brother, eventually my sister. There were the horses and the sheep and the dog and, you know, no one else. I mean, it was just, you know, I learned to live alone out there. The school I went to, when I finished eighth grade, there were 13 kids in the whole school, and I was the only one in my grade. I had no classmates for years, and, you know, I learned to study by myself. I learned to play by myself. I just did everything by myself. 
Now, while I had the foundations of my disease back then, my acting out didn't begin until I was an adult and after I was married and um but by then I lived in my head all the time. I mean, it didn't make any difference what was happening around me. You know, where I was was inside my head. I liked what Tom said. It was the your favorite topic, right, with Tom. Well, my favorite topic is Doug. I don't know. I don't care much about Tom's topic. I like my topic, and it's a whole lot better than Tom's was. Um, and coming into SA, you know, that was learning to open myself up to share myself with people around me, people in my home group, with my sponsor, with my grand sponsor. Now, someplace in there, things went wrong. I don't, some of you know that I relapsed a while back and I'm working on putting myself back together. But I think as I look at the history of my relapse, part of it was I was back isolating. I wasn't putting what was inside of me out there in front of me. I wasn't sharing that with anybody. And part of what, part of what was happening is, you know, when I had relapsed, I, at that point, that's where I lost that connection with my higher power. And, you know, working the steps sort of went away and, you know, writing in my journal went away and sharing what was inside of me went away. And I was back in the original, you know, I'm just inside myself. And part of what has improved is, you know, once I became so pained with I don't like the way I am living, and that was a long time. It's now I can, again, talk about what's inside of me. And I'm still fucking crazy. I really am. I'm just so insane. And, you know, these stupid ideas show up or these images show up or whatever shows up. And... You know, I have to say, God, I'm powerless. I really, I want to look at that. I want to think about that. I want to, you know, go down that path. But I know it's not good for me, and I need your help. And he helps me. And to be able to have friends in the program that I can talk to and say, hey, I'm having a really crazy day today. Uh, you know, whether that's my sponsor or whether it's in my home group or whether it's here at Unity Conference, being able to, you know, latch on to a friend and say, I'm crazy. Help. <laughs> um, you know, I've never had that experience in my life until I came into this fellowship to be able to share myself with somebody else and be accepted as I'm okay, even though I'm still crazy. I'm deeply grateful for being here. Grateful you guys are here with me. And I'm still crazy, 
thinks I'm a sexaholic. You know, that phrase, uh, I don't think much of myself, but all I'm, I'm the only one I think about. You know, that's isolation. I'm going to look around the room and I'm going, we've had some older gentlemen up here. I'm looking for a younger guy. It's probably sitting to slightly to my left. You want to come up, Graham? Come on, take a risk. Come on. You can do it. Thank you for taking the risk. My name is Graham, and uh, I'm a recovering sexaholic. Um, you, you know, I have been in the program for about a year, and uh, you know, the last two weeks. I had some relapses, right? And, uh, you know, I can, I think it's really related to, uh, the isolation. Um, and, uh, it, it catches up with you. And, uh, after a while and having someone who you can really, having, that uh, fellowship where you can really uh, just let others know what's really going on in inside of your head sometimes um, and not be judged or just to uh, be able to be accepted, right? Um, so I can really relate to the uh, – for me, it's the, it's the isolation and whenever I get outside of my head, it always helps. Um, however, uh, when the, the, the acting out keeps me from that, it keeps me locked inside myself and then it's a vicious cycle that's very, very hard to break out of. Um, and, uh, um, uh, but the only way I have found to break out of it is to make some, is to make connections. Right. And, you know, and the thing is, too, is uh, for me, I've been doing a lot of phone calls and whatnot. However, I think that uh, there's something about just the presence of the, the power of being in someone else's presence. Right. Uh, seeing, you know, face to face. Right. Uh, uh, is is uh, a phone call is something. Right, but sitting across, uh, sitting in front of someone or next to someone, um, who is looking at you, right, is, is, uh, I think is really important, the face to face connection. Um, let's see, so, uh, yeah, thanks for letting me share. You know, breaking out of isolation is doing something that I never wanted to do is speak at a meeting like this or be a part of that because you're going to judge me, you're going to reject me, you're going to laugh at me. Why would I do any stupid thing like that? So I'll stay isolated and in pain. Dominic, I'm a sexaholic. Um, you know, I, I've been in the program a long time, and isolation, I mean, today is something that I deal with, isolation versus connection. And I'm, whether that's with my higher power, whether that's with people, mostly with people. 
I mean, my disease is I'm much more comfortable alone. My disease was and is about renting a stack of pornography, locking myself in a room, and completely being lost in it. And when I came into the program, I mean, that's that was my that was what drove me into the program. I was going to kill myself because I could not stop running pornography and masturbating, and I could not. You know, I was 28 years old, and I could not. My life was nothing like I imagined it was supposed to be. Nothing. I was living at home with my dad. I hated my dad. We had a we had a <laughs> a battering relationship. It was violent. I hated being there, and I was with my dad. I wa- I envisioned at 28 years old I'd have a career. I did have a career, but I envisioned I would be married. I'd have be starting a family. And, I didn't even have a girlfriend. I didn't know how to connect with women. Um, it was much safer for me to go rent pornography. I'd been hurt really bad when I was a kid by my mom. She left, and I felt like it was about me. And so, you know, instead of connecting with a woman, I could go have any woman I wanted in a fantasy world, you know, in an adult bookstore or an adult section of a video store. And... um you know, it drove me to a pretty lonely place. I was a pretty popular kid growing up in, in school, um, but nobody knew what was going on in my in my secret life. And um, I just didn't know how to connect with women. I didn't. I was too scared of being hurt, left by, left by them. So pornography was the way I went. And as I left college, you know, systematically, my disease just kept weeding people out of my life. I just can't finding more and more reasons not to be with people. And um, and like I said, that brought me to a pretty low place where I wanted to kill myself, and that's what brought me in the doors of SA. And thank God for that. Thank God for that. My life is so different now than it was then, and yet isolation is still very much a part of my life. I mean, I I find reasons still not to be with people and yet I've been taught in this program that I can't trust my own thinking. I, I, I can't trust. I have to act opposite of what my head is telling me to do. And if I hadn't acted opposite of what my head was telling me to do, I'd, I never would have gotten married. I'm married in this program. I have a wife. I have three wonderful kids. I have lots of friends um, that are in this program mostly. You know, I still don't do well outside the program. You know, I have acquaintances outside the program, but... I feel much safer in here. I have a sponsor that I love. I've uh, been with him for a long time. I love the guy. Um, I have sponsees that I really care about. Um, I, too, had a, a, a good run of sobriety, long time, 11 years, and lost it um, four years ago, four years ago. And the thing that got me was isolation. You know, that pride, pride comes in and tells me I don't, that I can handle things that I cannot handle. I forget what it's like. I forgot what it was like. You know, I forgot what pornography was like. Started to miss it. You know, and I had to test it out again. And I'm going to tell you, it didn't work very well. It 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 hurt, and it hurt my family a lot. And um, it was the small things, the little ideas that I get in the back of my head that I don't talk about that I say, I can handle that. That's not that big a deal. I don't need to talk to my sponsor about that. 
I don't need to talk to, you know, my sponsees. I need, I start to find excuses again not to put my, make myself available even to my sponsees. And that's the thing that takes me out. So, you know, making myself available to people, being around people, not trusting my own thinking, reaching out to my sponsor, talking with them, doing the things the program tells me to do. And I have to pay really close attention to those little things that run through the back of my head that I say my head tells me I can handle, but I cannot handle. So I have to talk about those things. Anyway, thanks. Thanks, Dominic. Jerry. Uh, my name is Jerry, and I'm a sexaholic. Um, you know, when I was in junior high school, I read a poem. I know we're not supposed to quote outside literature in here, but the poem was called No Man is an Island. And I could not understand that poem. Uh, I, it was just totally and completely foreign to me because I, I lived my life thinking I have to take care of myself and do it all by myself. Grew up in an alcoholic home. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've been in another program for, for a lot of years. Um, in fact, um, 35 years ago, I, I thought I might have a problem with sexual addiction, and I called SA uh, back in Minneapolis and uh, had an appointment to meet someone and get introduced to the program, and I chickened out. It took me 33 more years to get back in here. And, uh, you know, it, it uh, I, you know, I, I, I have this corny thing that I think about when, when I, when I start isolating because I, by my nature, by my personality, uh, I'm kind of a shy Minnesota guy. I don't want to talk. I don't want to reach out to people. Uh, my wife is just the opposite. She's, she's wonderful to watch. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And I, and I've been studying her. We've been, thankfully, married for 27 years. It almost ended uh, a couple of years ago with my addiction. Uh, but I have this thing that I, I that I kind of helps me remember, and and what it is is you know because of uh, my addiction, alcohol and sexual addiction, I've got I've got some permanent brain damage up here. Uh, if things aren't wired quite right, and and the other thing that I've that I've learned in here is that you know that addict is never going to go away. Uh, you know, in, in the big book, it talks about, remember, we deal with lust or alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. And I always add patience to that because it's always, it's infinitely patient. So, you know, I've got that, when I isolate myself, I got that brain-damaged idiot talking to a sexaholic drunk. You know, and those two characters do not come up with very good ideas for me. They, they almost always, uh, well, you know, I, I, the isolation thing, my wife and I were on a trip for about six weeks and, uh, we were, we were traveling in Europe and there are not a lot of SA meetings over there and I was able to find one. Um, and, 
as that time went by, I just, all of the things that I had gained in the last couple of years in recovery, being more tolerant, being more accepting, being more patient, uh, being more loving, which I, I've learned in here, all of those were slipping away. And, uh, you know, I need to be here this weekend to kind of recharge the battery, get back where I, where I need to be and, and be with everybody here. I, you know, I, I spent 74 years ashamed of who I was, terrified, absolutely terrified that somebody would discover who I was and what I did. Uh, and that, was part, and I isolated because I didn't want anyone to get close and, and find that. And, you know, I, I remember walking into my first AA meeting and I, ugh, you know, I wasn't that, I wasn't that enamored with it. And I walked into my first essay meeting and it was kind of like, yeah, I belong here. <laughs> this is where I need to be. And to, to, to open my mouth and say, you know, my, Primary forms of acting out are masturbation and pornography and multiple extramarital affairs, bookstores, whatever, you know. To, to say those words has been so freeing to me. It's like finally, after all these years, I, I'm, I'm starting to feel whole. You know, I wish I'd gotten it 40, 50 years ago, but I'm just real grateful that I got it. Thank you. Time for one more. Yes, you wanted to share. I could tell. I saw that look in your eyes. I am Nathan, sexholic. Uh, yeah, isolation comes very easily for me. I was sitting there the entire meeting, talking myself out of ever speaking. Um, all my life, I could be in a group of people and feel like I'm in my own little world and nobody ever, uh, connected with me, you know, for the most part, there's very few instances that did anybody or did I let anybody, um, get that close to even know what was going on in my head. And then, uh, you know, hid this addiction until, uh, Discovery happened back in, uh, 2015 after I'd already been married, uh, about just under five years. And, uh, then people, you know, I let them know bits and pieces. And then even then, the I was still hiding and not really letting anybody in my head until, um, even though I had been technically sober, I was still hiding stuff. I was hiding, a a tablet for my wife. And when she found that, um, marriage was blowing up again. And then, uh, I went to a, an essay meeting, which I had been to a few times, but never, uh, connected with anybody. Now all of a sudden I, I knew I needed to be there. I knew I needed to get a sponsor and start making progress. And, uh, so I did that and, then I let out a little bit more of what was going on, but I don't think I felt the real connection until I did my first step uh, giveaway because I hated writing any portion of my first step and looking at myself and 
seeing all the junk that I had done. And um, it felt pretty disgusting writing it out. But once I did that and then everybody came up to me afterwards to see how they related and how they were so much just like I was, that's when I felt um, an actual connection with the group. And uh, that was a very unique experience. Um, I think that was probably the longest I had even hung around after a meeting just getting that connection from people and um, the being able to share what's going on in my head and my weaknesses and the, you know, all the jacked up forms of thinking and them not reject me is, is pretty comforting. Even though I still got so much to learn, I'm barely starting step four. I know I got a long ways to go, but, um, it's nice to not have a requirement other than being defective to be here. <laughs> so, um, and I, I, I clearly meet that requirement and no one turns me away. Uh, thanks for letting me share. Thanks. Okay. That's about it. A couple of things I want to just close with. Uh, we talked about the real small things, you know, heard a long time ago. When you go to a picnic, it's not the elephants are going to ruin the picnic. You see the elephants coming. And you get the hell out of their way. It's the ants. You just kind of brush them off the table, and they're not going to bother me until the ants are carrying the picnic basket away and everything else. And the other thing is, a year or so ago, why I come to this program, my wife was talking to her sister on the phone, and uh, I heard her say to her sister, her sister had said to Steve Holman, he's headed for a meeting. Does he go to a lot of meetings? Well, yeah. And I, my wife repeated the other side of the conversation. Well, do you ever feel lonely? No, if I want him to stay home, he'll stay home. But uh, she says, Marguerite, in this house, the order of things are clearly understood. God is first, the program is second, Steve is third, and I'm fourth. However, if he does it in that order, I always feel first. And that's why I stay, and that's why I do it in that order. So that she'll feel first. And when she's not feeling first, as I know when she says, have you called your sponsor? <laughs> Didn't you have a meeting tonight? <laughs> so let's close with the reading, please. I am Doug, and I am a sexologist. There is hope. Progressive victory over lust is possible. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.